Hello and welcome to episode 101 of Rebel City Podcast. Um, been a few weeks since we've been on, um, obviously, you know, covered while online, so thanks for those to who, you know, reached out to say hello and check in on us and stuff like that, much appreciated. Um, but we're just going to dust off and get straight back to normal. Um, this week we're extremely lucky to have um, Natalie McLean. Um, hi Natalie, nice hi. to meet you. Um, Natalie's a representative of Cisco Recovery. Um, this is actually a request that we got from a listener um, just before Christmas, um, thinking that you know there might be a, a, an organisation we'd enjoy speaking to, and uh, well, we think they're right. So, Natalie, um, who are, just to kind of introduce yourself, uh, who are Cisco and what is it they're up to? So Cisco, we were predominantly set up in 2016 to work within the Scottish Prison Service. What we done back then is we aligned ourselves with the drug strategy within the prison and we created what we call a recovery cafe. Now, I know that it sounds like a place to come for tea and biscuits, but it's not. It, um, yeah. It's absolutely not a place to come for tea and biscuits. It's a very challenging environment within the prison. It's delivered by all members that deliver it and facilitate it have lived experience of criminal justice or lived experience of addiction or lived experience of homelessness homelessness, either direct or indirect. Now, that worked so well within HMP Berlin that HMP Shorts wanted us to replicate the model within the prison so that we could support some of the prisoners that were going to be transitioning back out to the community. We done that in 2018 and that still is ongoing, but you guys will know when we were faced with the pandemic, it was a case of the establishments all closed down to external support. Yeah, that didn't mean that guys weren't leaving prison anymore, and it certainly didn't mean that guys were going to be struggling in the community. So what we done in March was we looked at our model inside the prison, and we changed it to adapt to a community approach, and we changed everything to be working out in the community, doing through care with prisoners. So we're very active in the local community just now, in and around Glasgow, and we no longer just work with criminal justice, we're actually receiving referrals from all organisations across the board because we've not stopped working. We've continued, mm -hmm. we looked at our approach and thought, okay, we can't do office work. Who says we can't go for a hill walk? Who yeah. says we can't go fris do some Frisbee golf? So we were yeah. predominantly a prison-based recovery drug and alcohol service, but we've now adapted out into the community. It's amazing. Sounds like lockdowns, I mean, there's been a few people, but that this has been the same for, but it sounds like it's been a positive thing for Cisco rather than the, the overall sort of negative thing that we're hearing about the lockdowns. I don't ever try and look at anything in a negative context. I have to be honest. I always try and find a positive or something in something or look for a positive or create a positive. Mm -hmm. And the reality is we could have shut up shop and done nothing like a lot of organisations done, but who would have benefited from that? Yeah. I certainly wouldn't work. I don't benefit working behind a computer. It doesn't benefit me because I know that we need to have a human contact approach with our client group. Mm -hmm. So it's been massively beneficial. You know, it's given me time to look at expanding into the community, which was always the kind of dream to do that anyway. So we've done it yeah. quicker. <laughs> yeah, so like the adverse conditions kind of forced your hand on something that you'd have maybe have just kept sort of pushing away is like your day to day has been so busy. So and that's really good, man. I think it's really good for people, even just in a general way, to hear somebody talk about, like, <coughs> if you look for the positives, you'll find them. Um, and, like, more power to you that you've actually went out into the community um, to do the work rather than, like, because that, 
normal way has been taken away. So that's amazing. Like, so good to hear. Got to respect anybody who evolves in these scenarios to actually, like, you know, keep up the level of support that they're seeking to provide. Um, I think one of the reasons that we're um, listeners recommended that we get in touch with ourselves was because in the past we've covered a number of like sort of tangential subjects like ACEs, harm reduction, violence reduction, so on and so forth. Like, um, how how did you find yourself in this sort of area of work? So I think if you look at most of the people that's in the field that we work in, most of the people have lived experience, whether it's direct or indirect. You know, something has happened in their life that mm-hmm. gives them an understanding. So my background is very, very chaotic. You know, I lived a very, very chaotic lifestyle. I grew up in a very disadvantaged area. My parents were both criminals. I had no role models in my life. So, you know, I scored 10 on uh, Adverse Childhood Questionnaire. I have had so many incidents happen in my life. My dad committed suicide in prison when I was five years old. Um, And I I had to go through all my own horrific experiences in life to find recovery. Mm. Then when I entered into recovery, the year after I got into recovery, another one of my family members died in prison. So when the prison asked me, you know, can you come and create something for us? It was an absolute yes, because I personally have been affected by two family members that left a prison establishment in a black body bag. And I think that no family member should have to face with that. Yeah. So then when you look at a child that's so broken, you know, you then look at attachment, you look at abandonment issues. And I grew up with all the adverse childhood experiences. But when I got therapy and got support for post-traumatic stress and really looked at my childhood experience and I got better, once I found a solution, I recognised, you know, if I can get better in my life, my, my childhood was horrific, guys. Like, it was really, really horrific mm-hmm. um, for me and my sister. But, you know, if I can get through that, then I can show someone else the journey to get there as well. And that's why I'm so passionate about I eat, sleep and breathe this work because I just know there's something better for people. This is one of the reasons I love having these conversations like with, like, say, yourself, like James Doherty and other guys we've had on this, is that it's almost, you know, evangelical in a sense where you're out there, you know, taking what you've learned and sharing that message with other folk. And, like, it's so, I don't know, I, I, just, I take so much, you know, real enjoyment out of seeing people taking those lessons back into their community and actually, like, sharing these new ideas and this sort of new approach that, we seem to be trying to develop in Scotland for these types of issues. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, I think when we did the ACES episode with, with James, <laughs> we were quite surprised at some of the backlash that we got because we were sitting reading. I think I had I had heard about ACES um, through mental health training. Um, and when I read it, it was such a profound experience for me to read some of these experiences and think, I've, I've got like six of these. Yeah. And I don't even consider myself to have a traumatic childhood. When I thought about the people that were running about me in the scheme, I was like, wow, man, some of these, this is like a laundry list for this. Just check, check, check for people that I know. But then when we shared that message, we get a lot of people coming back, giving it the sort of, I'm all right, Jack. Well, I grew up with parents that were like this, and I grew up in Poso, and I grew up in Springburn, and I managed to get myself out. So this is a whole load of shite. Like, do you find that you get that kind of, response sometimes in the community for people that have managed to pull themselves up with their bootstraps but feel like the people running about them should do the same 
believe it or not, I get it from my own family. You know, my, right. my, some of my family are very much, when I was in a very, very bad place in my life, my family are very much, you know, pull your socks up and go on with it. You know, we grew up in um, disadvantaged communities and we, we managed to get through. And I think that people don't understand trauma unless you're in the trauma. And that's just the reality. And it affects everyone differently. You know, you look at me and my sister, both grew up in the same environment. We both experienced the same traumatic events in our life. I went down one road that was chaotic and it was addiction and it was, you know, very, very dark. Whereas my sister is a millionaire who lives in California and has a fantastic lifestyle. Mm -hmm. You know, so we are two two of the same people that grew up in the same environment, yet how we dealt with life was very different. And I, I also see it in my own children. You know, my children spent the first few years of their life in my addiction too, because mm-hmm. I didn't get clean until eight years ago and my kids are 11 and 14. So I see some of the traumas in their life. You know, my yep. oldest son is very, he's like the Mariana Trench, you know, he pushes things down. He doesn't want to talk about it. Whereas the younger one is very explosive. Uh, mm-hmm. And very similar to my behaviours, you know, I was very explosive, I always had to be seen and heard, and, and it was because I was screaming out, there was pain inside, yeah. you know, so because I have that understanding of it, I can nurture that in my own children and support them through the trauma that they saw in my addiction. Yeah, and I think that's so important as well for people that have kids to, like, so another thing that I did personally, I remember like being younger and my mate telling me about his big brother who was a, a previous heroin addict who went into drug counselling. And at the time I was about 16 or 17 and I can remember thinking like, how can he be a counsellor? Like, they're just that childish, immature mindset of thinking, no, it needs to be somebody that's went to uni and knows what they're talking about in a professional. As I've got older, I realised just what you said there, like you're going to stop that trauma you're going to stop that cycle of trauma in your children because you recognise it and it takes for people. I don't think people can actually understand it unless they love it. You know, I don't understand it. I've never had like a serious drug addiction. I've had Mm -hmm. other addictions, but I'll never, ever understand what it's like to grow up in a household where the parents are an alcoholic or the the parents are um, a drug addict, but you do. And so like, you're going to stop that. And I think it's so important that people that do live through trauma and addiction and these things that we get that make our lives like adverse, that we then, once you recover, that you share that message. And uh, I think it's amazing that you're doing that. It's amazing to hear you say that you recognize that in your kids. Do you know what I mean? Like, I, I just feel so much I think much it might like... be a bit of a, a sort of cliched term in, in the context of the conversation we're happening, but like, what I think about when I hear about these new ideas like ACEs, violence reduction, obviously recovery cafes like we've had recovery Dundee and stuff previously, um, is sort of breaking the cycle. Um, and in the past, I've always had the impression of like people who have to go through the prison system that there is almost a kind of cycle that a lot of them have had to go through because there is no realisation of their trauma. There is no ability to really actually rehabilitate people. It's always been about punitive measures. Um, And, you know, I think we're coming around to the fact that they don't work um, or, you know, they don't work to the extent that we hope they do anyway. Um, Is that, do you think that's a fair reflection of, like, the, the work that you're trying to do is to actually, like, give people options to step out that cycle? One of the biggest problems I think that we have in Scotland is we're great at writing policies, but when it comes to practice, we're very, very poor at it and it's very disconnected. And I think that it's great that organisations shout about, you know, we're very trauma-informed, we work in a person-centred approach, but 
these are the organisations that are still dictating to their clients what the clients need to do. When I say that we work in a, a trauma-informed manner and that we are person-centred, that means that I know that every prisoner that comes to me is going to come with a different set of difficulties. You know, something different is going to happen in their life. So their care plan's got to be what they need, not what I think they need, you know. I don't know what they need. So they've got to come to me and say, you know, I'm completely broken. I was abused as a child. Uh, I have a dysfunctional family. I don't have any housing. So then I can work with that. So for mm -hmm. me, I think shouting about, oh, let's do restorative justice because it's really good and doing a campaign for six months. Who are we serving when we do that? Is that just to generate more money? You know, I think that we need to get better. I think that it's slowly starting to change. And here's the thing, like the Scottish Prison Service are outstanding in what they try to do, but it's aged. It's, you know, it's aged, it's really old, but what they're recognising now is that by bringing individuals like me into the establishments, they're getting better outcomes. When a prisoner goes to, for example, speak to a staff member or an NHS staff nurse, and this is no offence to the staff in there because they're wonderful, they get resistance because they're working with boys that have resisted a system their whole entire life. So they're up against resistance. Whereas if I go to a prisoner and say, listen, I've sat in the same seat as you. I've had the exact same experiences as you. What is going on with you? Like, how can we make your life better? You start to see their vulnerability and they open up. So the systems are starting to slowly, slowly change, but I still think we're so disconnected in Scotland. It's so, everyone wants to work in conflict and isolation and it's purely down to funding streams. Whereas okay. if everyone got small pockets of money, we could all work together in harmony and it would just be a better music sheet. So you're saying the budgetary confinements are essentially pitneys against each other when in actual fact it would be much better if these were able to work, as you say, in more sort of harmony? Mm -hmm. And that's, that's what happens, and it's happened in Scotland for years. Then you've got the big organisations that squeeze out the grassroots organisations. Mm -hmm. And again, it's all down to competition and funding. It's, it's a very, very poor... It's very Seems poor. counterproductive, doesn't it? It is. It's very, very poor. But I think that, you know, we've got Angela Constance that's come into the Scottish Government. She is, I hope, going to enforce massive changes around drug policy and how our large organisations work out here and see if that happens. It will make my job so much easier because the guys will have choice. They'll have options. You know, it won't be a case of just go to your doctor and go on 80 ml methadone and stay on that for 10 years because... We can't offer you any psychosocial supports. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. I think the thing, the one thing that screamed out at me what you were talking about going and connecting with these boys, like if they're in uh, hospitals or prisons and like you're saying, the police officer traditionally would come in and speak to them. They're not going to open up to them. But when you share that sort of personal experience with them, you're giving them empathy and acceptance. You're accepting who they are as a person. And it's just acknowledging that like that's not their fault like I think there's, there'll be a lot of sort of guilt and blame in an individual that watches their parent go into addiction and so many of them and I've met them myself as well when I was young I'll never do that I'm never yeah. going to do that and then they end up there and it's that whole how did I end up here but when somebody like yourself comes in and goes look I've been where you've been come on open up to me and they finally open up it must be so liberating for them to actually just be heard for the first time and for somebody not to think that they're just a wee scumbag or whatever, because yeah. that is what they're met with, like, on a daily basis, isn't it? Sort of um, I was just and... going to actually just quickly um, follow up, because obviously when we were talking about 
um, this sort of change in attitude. And I think you touched on it as well. Like it's not just the institutional attitudes that need to change. And I think having these conversations can allow like the public attitude to change. Because I think when it comes to people who have served time in prison, you know, when we talk about funding, when we talk about priorities and budgets and stuff like that, like I think it's very much one of those things where a lot of the population go, well, it's, it's just prisoners. Like they've made their choices. Like why should we care? Why should we throw extra money? So on and so forth. And I think the work you're doing allows us to look at it and go, well, hold on. If we manage to stop people reoffending, then we're spending less money on, you know, accommodation we're spending less money on treatment and you know all these other things um i find it a wee bit worrying though that i think down in england um i think when johnson was you know won his election what did he announce like six new prisons is that i don't know if they're just for england or whether that's going to be across the entire uk but it seems that when we talk about that pushback we've got the ideas and the people like yourself at one end but the actual you know at a governmental level they're looking very much more at expanding the sort of punitive side of it, which must be obviously disappointing. But again, I don't know if that's just done in England or not. Do you know, it's really frustrating because if you would have watched that in the Garvey's um, documentary last night on social classes, mm -hmm. this is a perfect example of government want to keep classes. You know, they want to keep people in classes. It's they make money out of putting guys in jail and that's the reality. But when we look at a cost-benefit analysis of the work that we do and what we save the taxpayer. So I'm all about the taxpayer because the reality mm -hmm. is I get my funding from organisations that taxpayers pay into. So I'm paid by the taxpayer to deliver a service to these guys to then save the taxpayer more money. So when we look at this in a cost-benefit analysis, we could save the government absolute millions in a year. So then why are we building more prisons? Why are we not building more rehabs? Why are we not building more supported accommodations? These guys are coming from the same set of skills as me. No life experience. They don't know how to manage their house. You know, we wouldn't put a seven-year-old child in prison because they didn't know how to manage life. And that's basically what we're doing. When I sit with these guys, it's Sometimes I can sit with an over 50-year-old man and all I see is a child, a broken child that's never grown up or that has grown up in a system and he's been dictated what he's going to be, what time he's going to get up, what medication he's going to be on, where he's going to stay. So then what choice do individuals like that really have? They don't have any choice. They've been so stigmatised by a society yep. that they then believe that they're a label or a number or they just forget who they are and just become a drug addict. Yeah. To be in that place, it's very difficult then to come back out that place unless someone is willing to invest in you and say, you know, I'm going to believe in you until you believe in yourself and I'm going to support you to achieve whatever goals you think that you need to achieve to stay out of prison. And that's what these guys don't hear. They never hear, like, what can I do to make life better for you? They just hear, it's time to get up, it's time to eat, it's time to brush your teeth, come and get your meds, you know, go to PE. Yeah, sounds like school. It pretty much is like a school, you know. So if these guys work very well with routine inside prison, which they do, why mm -hmm. can't we train them to work well with routine out in the community? Yeah, but it just Absolutely. shows you that, that, and if you think about it like that, because I've never had it framed like that for me, what type of psychological turmoil does somebody go through if they spend 20 years in a rigid routine of awake, shower, meds, work, workout, exercise, right, blah, 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 amazing, now, You've been here, you've served your time, off you pop, no routine. What are they going to do? They're going to go straight back into addiction because it's what they know. 
So that the outside world must be petrifying for somebody that's been in such a, a, a tight routine and then for it to just be like left and, and you're off to your own devices. So I think that, so I, I take it that there, there's been a lot of failings in the sort of post-prison experience for a lot of people, I take it. I think there's just failures right across the board. I just think it's really, really difficult. Like some of the guys that you're speaking about, I'll work with them in prison and then when they're about to leave, they don't want to leave because the fear is I'm going to get a sleeping bag when I leave here or I'm going to go to a hostel and the hostel that I'm going to go to is going to be surrounded by addiction and crime. Mm -hmm. So then when you work with these guys, some of them say, you know, I would just want to go back to prison. I know what I need to do in prison, you know, I know when I need to get up, people tell me what I need to do, because they cannot live life on life's terms, they don't know how to, and unless we invest time and effort into these guys, they're going to just be, continue to become that product of a broken system. Yeah, absolutely. The last thing that I wanted to say was, is that there was a point that you had said earlier about the cost-benefit analysis, and we're actually starting to see, even just in the workplace, that the cost of mental health issues is in the billions. So you're saying we could save the, the, the government millions. You could be saving them billions by rehabilitating people properly because the, it costs private businesses something like five billion a year just in the sick days that people take with sickness and diarrhea, which we're starting to see is probably stress and anxiety. So the amount of money that could be saved just by, like you're saying, organising the rehabilitation of people that are addicts, not criminals, it would run into the billions. I just thought I'll, I'll edit that in to the bit that you, said, that you said that because it's it's got to be a wild number that they spend. But like you had said, where does that money go? Well, it goes to their mates. Do you know what I mean? That's why like you're saying they want to keep class in place because if they start to rehabilitate people properly and save the taxpayer money, it's less money going to the people that actually own the businesses that supply the services to the prisons. And this is where... I get really frustrated with working class people that stick to that sort of bullshit line of like, well, they deserve it. And it's like, you're just being indoctrined and with propaganda for a government, mate, like genuinely, like you should turn around, look at the people that were running about you and try and raise them up. No, just hit them down because you managed to get yourself out. It's like... Realise that a lot of the people we're talking about are the guys that we grew up with and the guys that we went to school and could quite easily have been us, but bar, you know, the course of events. Um mm -hmm. One of the things I kind of wanted to just touch on, because obviously we're talking about how each individual person you work with has, you know, an individual plan for their sort of release and recovery into the community. Um, what what types of techniques and what types of sort of processes do you actually use without obviously breaching anybody's, you know, confidentiality, confidentiality. or anything like that? Uh, so we work using a whole person approach and a whole person approach is basically everything under the one banner. So it's like their physical, their emotional, their mental health, their occupational, their educational. So it's right across the board about, okay, what's your journey going to look like when you leave? Where are you going to stay? What's your family support? What's your physical health like? Are you on any medication? What type of support do you need? So do you need a wraparound support, which would be three or four mentor sessions a week and online access to the groups uh, and a group activity? Or is it just more a phone support? You know, so it's very, very tailored made. But an example is I've been supporting um, a younger individual. He's only a younger boy that has grew up in absolute carnage and chaos. Mum's an alcoholic. Dad was a heroin addict, in and out of prison, both of them. Very, very, lots of domestic violence in the house. 
This wee guy has done absolutely fantastic during his prison sentence, very much a role model prisoner inside the prison, works great with routine, you know, takes really, really, if I give him constructive criticism, he doesn't blow up on me, you know, he takes it on board, he'll write it down and then he'll, he'll reflect on it and maybe phone me and say, I'm just starting to understand what you were saying to me there. I've worked with that wee guy, now we got him into a hostel when he first left prison. Um, but for someone that's managed sobriety for nine months in prison, to go to a hostel in the community where it's chaotic, surrounded by drugs, his mental health was deteriorating, he was suicidal, and he was going to attempt suicide. So thankfully the house really listened to us when we said, you know, you're going to be held accountable unless you get this, this wee boy moved into a, a temporary accommodation on his own. You know, his mental health is not going to allow him to stay alive anymore. We got moved into a temporary accommodation, but my naivety, not realising, this wee guy has came from trauma, therefore he has no life experience, he has no life skills. Mm. Every couple of hours I would get a phone call from him, the cooker's broke, I can't get it to work, or, you know, my electricity's not going on, so I'm having to go down and say, oh, I forgot to say, yeah, that's your electricity key. So we need to go and put money in that and that gives you the electricity or your cooker's not working. Okay, so that switch there is to put your cooker on. When, you know, these guys don't know the basics of how to live. Yeah. That's the yeah. basics that you, mm -hmm. you, you know, as much as my childhood was very, very traumatic, I had a mother that loved me that didn't take drugs. She was just a criminal, but she came for that because she had a really shit childhood too. So she only gave me what she knew to give me mm -hmm. as a parent. You know, and that's what we're seeing with these guys. They don't have good role models that can teach them, this is how you look after yourself. This is how you make a bed. This is how you, you know, they don't. So we're having to parent them right through their whole journey, get them safe in their accommodation, and then look at, okay, what psychosocial supports do we need to put in place? So that is mm -hmm. the typical journey of someone. That yeah. is, that's intense. Like, have I mean, so much of what you're talking about there, as you say, like, electricity keys and you know switching on a cooker and various i mean there's so much that you take for granted in your everyday life that it would be quite easy to miss it when you were explaining you know what day-to-day -day is going to look like for somebody yeah um, i think like even from our personal experience matt i know that our experience of learning these things like learning how to use a washing machine learning how to cook your own dinner put your it, it happened at sort of uni time and it was kind yeah. of funny and like fun but if you're Aye. dealing with the fear of returning to normal life for a, 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 what we'll talk about, the routine, and then dealing with your trauma, you could imagine just it, it becoming overwhelming and just thinking, oh, fuck this, I'm just going to just, why? Why even bother? I don't know how to yeah. do any of this. I just either want to get back to what I know, which is the prison system, or like you're saying, I'm, I'm just going to take my own life. And it's even just, think, I'd, I'd never even thought about somebody having to come out and a, and a grown man having to learn the basics of keeping a flat going and how even demoralising that would be and how important it would be for him to have you there so that he can phone you and feel yeah. comfortable doing that without somebody thinking, oh, you're a fucking idiot, like, what are you doing? Like, I man of the judgment. house chat, you know what I mean? Like, you're yeah. expected to be able to go into and, you know, look after your stuff. It'd be quite emasculating to not be able to control your business because you've never been shown how, you know what I mean? And that's, that's, that's very tough for a man in Scotland to admit that because... We are very much, men in Scotland are very much, you know, you don't talk about your emotions, you just go on with it because we are very hard Scottish men and, you know. Yeah. And so for a man to break down and become vulnerable, 
it, it's more difficult than it is for a woman. You know, women like to talk to other women and we talk about our feelings and emotions and we're very comfortable with that. But for a man to do that, it's very difficult because he then loses a sense of his own dignity and saying, actually, I don't know how to do anything. Can you really, really help me? And yeah, it's really absolutely. Hard. It's really, you know, we had one guy that didn't want to tell us how broken he was and didn't want to tell us that his living environment consisted of a flat 14 up with nothing in it, nothing at all. Nothing, and I mean nothing, bare floorboards, you know, and it took wow. our mentors to go up because we couldn't get a hold of him to actually see what he was living in and say, right, okay, you know, we need to get your house decorated. We need to get your furniture. We need to, it's a pride thing. Some guys don't yeah. want to talk about how difficult their life is because they want to hold on to that tiny bit of dignity they might have. And I mean, I can relate to that, but I that's it's quite harrowing to think that you know, even when because you would think that if you were coming out of the prison system and that you'd managed to get yourself to a place where you've got your own wee gaff now and you're starting to you know build this new life, I would naturally think that you know, coming out of the system and having your own wee place and starting to put the building blocks of your life together could potentially be a really positive thing for somebody to focus on, but. The notion that other people's reality is that they've literally been handed a set of keys to a shell of a house and just left to themselves is like, it's, it's quite harrowing and I can get why somebody would be, you know, reluctant to volunteer that because they would be maybe sitting thinking to themselves, well, I'm supposed to feel good about this. This is me. Yeah. I've got my own front door again and I've got, you know, neighbours and, and but in actual fact, what they've got is just so many challenges that, again, they're no maybe personally equipped to handle. But um, it's, it's so interesting to see like the other side of it in that respect because it is challenging even my own assumptions about it. How much does a therapeutic process help people post-prison? So like actual counselling and therapy or CBT or whatever it is that they go through, like how important is that? It's, it's not important, it's a priority. So for me, learning about my addiction, so putting the drugs down for me, putting drugs and alcohol down for me was the easiest thing for me to do. You know, I was removed from, I was abstracted, actually. Um, I had been sectioned three times towards the end of my years, mandatory section by the prison, 28 days. I was a danger to myself and others, you know, and at the end of that, I had a really good community addiction worker that really listened to me and she would hear me and I was saying, you know, you need to take me out of Glasgow. You need to remove me. I, I, you know, my community was chaotic for me. It's the place where there was lots of damage and trauma. So I was fortunate enough to be abstract and put into Castle Craig, which is a great residential. Putting the drugs down was easy. So then the minute I got sober, in my head was everything I had ever tried to escape from. Mm -hmm. The pain, the hurt, the trauma, the rejection, the abandonment, the violence. You know, I was left with all that. So thankfully, I was in a safe environment where I could receive grief counselling, trauma counselling. I was diagnosed with post-traumatic stress. So I was then able to look at, you know, the trauma in my life was never my fault. As a child, you know, I wasn't responsible for what people done to me. That wasn't my fault. I couldn't be held mm -hmm. accountable. So it was learning ways to manage and, you know, let go of what other people done to me and really look at what I could work on. So for these guys, you know, we can't just expect them to reduce on methadone and, and come off drugs and be better because what they're left with is the head. So it's like all the stuff they've ever ran away from. Yes. That's so that. we absolutely must be able to offer counselling. We must be able to say, you know, we see your trauma. We see you. We recognise the pain you're in. And we're going to look at avenues to support you. Otherwise, what we're doing is we're just getting someone clean and sober and we're leaving them with the same emptiness that they use drugs for to begin with. 
Yeah, perfectly put, man. Perfectly put. I think that that's just <laughs> the big thing, isn't it? The drug addiction. That's a symptom of a deeper set set of emotional traumas. And like you're saying, it, and what Matt's saying there, people think once the addiction's gone, it's like sunshine and lollipops, and people skipping through the park and post addiction recovery. Or life must be amazing. <laughs> it's like the opposite. You go back to the darkest place that you've been, and it's then the, the chance to rebuild and just knowing that you need somebody's support to, and somebody's guidance to to start that rebuilding process is so, like, nice for me to hear as a mental health professional, but mm. as somebody that knows that there's a six to eight week wait to even speak to a counsellor on the NHS, that six yeah. to eight weeks could be somebody's death, mm. you know, like, um, it must be really hard even for you guys to source that um, level of care that these guys and women so and children as well that are in the, the prison system so desperately need um i it's just it, it there's like a sort of bitter sweetness to it when i hear the therapeutic mm. process really does help people in a real real way but also i know that the services are so stretched and people can't get to them is there like just to actually like mm. anybody listening to this to actually like show them because i think when you go for you get a a, a referral for the nhs you get two sessions and then you go down to a fortnight and then you get another two sessions, you go down to four weekly, you get another two sessions and that's it. So six sessions and it's two weekly, two fortnightly, two monthly and then gone. How many sessions of like psychotherapy, if you don't mind me asking again, like no breaking confidentiality on average, do you think it would take for somebody to get the proper care that they need to recover for trauma? So just to give you a bit of insight, I still receive counselling and I'm eight years sober. I receive mm -hmm. counselling every week and I will never put an end date on it. So just to give you insight, I don't wake up in the morning and it's like, glory be, hallelujah, let's just smash this day. Like, I still have an, an addict's head, which is very loud in the morning. My head will tell me, what are you getting up out of bed for? Who do you think you are? Supporting people, you can't even support yourself. You're not a CEO, you know, so it'll be very, very... So I have a programme that I practice every morning. I get down on my hands and knees and I pray to my higher power, which is the universe, to give me some guidance and direction through the day. I really challenge my thought process. I'll usually do either a guided meditation or I do lots of shamanic um, exercises. So I'll go outside and ground myself. And then if my head's still loud, I need to phone someone and be like, oh my God, I woke up and my head's telling me I'm a useless bastard this morning and have a bit of banter because it then breaks the power of what's going on in my head. Yep. So that's me, eight years, and I am surrounded by, like James Doherty is one of my best friends. I'm surrounded by guys that are entrenched in this work. You know, I have amazing supports around about me. Mm -hmm. So if that's me, someone that's independent, quite confident in their life, that has that loud head, what is someone that's going to be a week or a month or like you say, a couple of months sober, what's their head going to be like? It's going to be just as noisy. Yeah. So we, you can never put an end date on someone's support. And I think it really pisses me off when services say, you know, we're going to work with you for a year and this is what we expect to see within that year. Well, anything can happen in someone's life. We don't know what's going to happen tonight or tomorrow or the next day. So who am I to say to someone, you're a tin of Heinz beans and you get an expiration date next year. So that's how long we're going to work with you. Mm -hmm. We say to people, we'll work with you until you feel ready to move on to something else. That's amazing. And to hear somebody, like, I just want to just say, like, like, well done on the daily work that you do, because this is one of the big things that even I see in, in my clients and I see amongst a lot of people is this 
therapeutic resistance because they think I'm going to come here and you're going to fix me and that's it. So, and it's like, look, I'm, I'm going to guide you on telling you what you need to do every day to keep yourself well because physical fitness, mental fitness, it is all a daily practice. And it's amazing to hear you say that you meditate because we speak, I've spoke so much about meditation. I, I meditate every I day. And, um, listening to you say that you challenge your thoughts, but that must be really amazing for uh, somebody that's maybe coming out of addiction and thinking what's wrong with me i'm two years three years four years eight years clean and i'm still dealing with my demons it's like unfortunately that might be forever but you need to do Mm -hmm. the work daily so that you don't end up letting that rule your life so that's amazing to hear you say that like so good Uh, sorry matt just Took it off in the oh, not at all, man. I, I'm I'm completely away on that one. Um, what I was kind of wanting to hope to move on to next was some of the the support that, as you say, you've touched on about what happens when people leave prison. Um, I feel as though, and we've had this chat with guys like Graham Armstrong and that you know previously, where somebody's conviction, you know, we talk about somebody serving their debt to society. Um, and I can actually see the eye roll there, even as the words come out my mouth, but like. It doesn't feel as though that somebody coming out of a prison term is actually, you know, fully paid up. It seems as though we expect them to carry the burden of, you know, their actions or their circumstances for a lot longer than any prison sentence they've been given. And it is things like housing, it is things like jobs, it is, you know, there are areas where that time in prison could still have a really negative impact on somebody's life even out with addiction, even out with trauma, just the actual fact that on a bit of paper it says they were convicted or something like, at what point do we let people off the hook? At what point do we say, you know, like, this should not affect your ability to have a roof over your head? This should not, if you've not been violent, if it's, you know, there are maybe caveats in place, but this should not affect your ability to get a job and actually, like, go back into the community and be, like, a contributing member of society. I mean... The work that you're doing, I think, is trying to address some of that, trying to provide support in some of those areas. But like societally, like what attitudes to, need to change. And I like, I don't really know how we get some an idea that big out there to people that mistakes shouldn't have to follow people about their entire life. And that's I mean, what happens. Like even so, even for me, because I have lived experience, I won't get round the same table as someone that doesn't have lived experience. Someone that's just you know went to university and came from an affluent area and you know worked their way up you know they'll get around a a table of power so much quicker than me but then Mm -hmm. you have me that's educated myself got myself better it's getting stuck into my education I need to jump through 10 circles to get around that because people still have a "Mm, we don't know because you know she's had a dodgy lifestyle or and here's the thing about prison you can't take someone's liberty away from and and say you know they're rehabilitated well what are we doing to rehabilitate them because you can't punish someone for being a drug addict it tells us in the NICE guidelines it tells us in every guideline that we have around addiction that drug addiction is an illness so Mm -hmm. if it's an illness we wouldn't punish someone with cancer or someone with diabetes, you know, we wouldn't punish yep. someone, but yet we punish drug addicts because they might go into Poundland and steal a couple of pounds worth of stuff, really petty stuff. So then we send them to prison for 18 months. So then what are we? Te- what is the system teaching anyone? It's not teaching anyone anything. Absolutely. Um, I think that, that <clears throat> especially if somebody's stealing to survive, uh, yeah. you know what I mean? Um, and if they're stealing food to like, we need to realise that a lot of the time people are stealing to feed their kids. 
they're not even like stealing to feed themselves and when we that's what you're saying like society's teaching them that they're scum for doing that and it's like in one hand it's like we're told do anything to protect your family and do anything to do this and feed your kids and Aye. you should do this responsibility but, and but then the only but oh yeah but <laughs> but not that because that's hurting this and that's hurting that and in fact you're going to like Matt's saying you go to prison and then you need to disclose that in applications for jobs I think that that for me I mean there'll be I'm sure there'd be somebody out there that would disagree with me but I think once somebody's been to prison served their time why do they need to inform a fucking employer that they've done that do you know what I mean like it's why nonsense, is that Paul. it's not it's absolute nonsense like the the reality is convictions will carry someone almost for the rest of their life and I know that Karen McCluskey is trying to make massive changes around you know how we dispose convictions should we be disposing convictions but for the most part a conviction will follow these guys around for the rest of their life especially some of the guys that I've worked with the long term longer term prisoners that came out and they have social work restrictions you know and they, they, they need to work with social work they have to attend every appointment you know they're, they're for the rest of their life they're going to be known as that individual that murdered someone when they were 17 when they were under the influence when they were caught up in gang violence they're now 50 years old they're out in the community they don't know jack shit because they've been in for so long technology's taken over we've got fast cars we've got yep. you know i just think it's a very disconnected system and we could we could do it so much better but then who am I? I'm just Natalie that was the, the wee addict. Um, so sometimes my voice is not accepted or not listened to, but it just means that I stand on a higher platform and shout even louder. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that you're the type of person and that type of people need to be moving into politics. We need to, like, unfortunately, I'm not being an arsehole. Anybody that's university educated, like you're saying, no lived experience, but... Yeah. That is who end up in the in Westminster. That's who ends up in Holyrood the majority of the time. People with no lived experiences. And we had Mary Black on 18 months, two years ago. And one of the big, real, like, poignant things that she said to me was, is that how could... We were talking about Jacob Rees-Mogg. Like, obviously, we were talking about how much she a cunt is. But um, she was... We were asking... I was asking... She was saying that one of the things that really confused her was is that when she met them on a personal level, they're actually... Like, she's like, if you take away their politics, they're nice enough people to you in the flesh. Um, and she, she had a, a real sort of trouble sort of squaring that circle. And she came to the conclusion that they'll never know what it's like. How could they? You will never know what it's been like for him to be privately educated, have a nanny, and all the stuff that he's been through, which, whatever he will never, ever know what it's like for a kid growing up in Easter House. He'll claim it because he needs to get elected. He'll claim to know and claim that he's going to do everything he can, but he looks at everything through his privileged lens. And I think that as few people are like, how do we fix politics and political reform? It's like, get people like you, get people that have lived through these experiences. Why are you not contributing to the drug policy in Scotland? Why are you not contributing to the prison policy in Scotland? James, why is he not there? Loki, why is he not there? Why is it that they're on the BBC, we're talking, coming on podcasts, we're doing media, but ultimately it's the privileged few that will make the decisions that actually impact this long term and they yeah. need to be held accountable for that. Do you know what I mean? So as much as you're like, I'm, I'm just Natalie, that we are, yeah, your voice needs to be held more because you know what this is about. Do you know what I mean? Like we need to stop Aye. fucking giving 19, 20 year old university graduates the position of power. 
to make these changes. Do you know what I mean? I'll yeah, stop I ranting just, now. I just won't become complicit in the bullshit, though, Paul. That's the thing for me, you know. I yeah. won't, and the way I say it to my board is, I don't ever want to sit around a table with ball rubbers stroking each other's ego because I don't want to be that person. Then you become complicit in the failures in the system. You know, I want to be that person that's outside the tent, pissing on it, saying, you know, here's the changes you need to make and this is what you need to do. And, like, everything that, that I, everything that I talk about is from the voices of the people that I support. So they're not my words anymore, you know. I don't use anything belonging to me. I've got my supports in place, you know. My life is yep. all right. I, I have lots of people around about me. But it's I'm taking everything that they're telling me and I need to shout really loud. Here's an example. I took one of my clients to his community addiction worker last week. Now, this client who I've worked with for five years has been telling me my cat worker doesn't like me. He disrespects me. Anytime I ask him to reduce me on my methadone, he'll say, oh, we're not doing that. We're not doing that. We're going to put you up because you're still using. Now, as addicts, we can exaggerate things. We're very good at exaggerating things, actually. Yep. And I thought, mm, maybe he's just exaggerating. You know, I'm going to go with him and just see if the experience is what he's saying it is. Now, that community addiction <coughs> worker with me in the room turned around and said to my client, when are you going to stop playing the victim? When are you going to stop playing the victim? And when do you stop needing an audience? Now, my jaw dropped because I'm like, you're supposed to be trauma-informed. Mm -hmm. You're supposed to be person-centered. And you're asking a guy that was abused by his two aunts, his whole childhood, when are you going, going to stop playing the, the victim? So to that, I said, you know, he is a victim. He is a victim. Oh, Have nice. you ever read... Do you know anything about his life? Can I see his care plan? They don't even have a care plan. That's wild. So there's an addict actually asking for a reduction in the substance and faced a, just a personal attack as a result. I mean, I could understand if somebody thought they were maybe no, no an attack, but I could understand somebody pushing back an authority if an addict was asking for more or whatever substance they're on, but to be asking for less and get that reaction is, I I'm stunned. And that's more common than you can imagine. Most of my clients will go to their addiction workers and ask for a reduction. And what they hear back is, we don't think you're ready yet. We don't think you're ready and we don't think it's time for you. So let's maybe put you up a wee five mils or a wee 10 mils and then we'll look at, you know, so they're encouraging them to go up on their doors. Why? Why? Because community addiction workers are in a place where, not all of them, because there's some great workers out there, but a lot play God. And they want to dictate, you know, I know it's going to be really good for you, so I'm going to tell you what's going to work. When in reality is, they're university educated, they've never had any trauma in their life, they don't know what it's like to be on a prescription medication for 25 years and be chained to a chemist, but they're our best advisors. They're going to fix us and tell us how that life's going to be wonderful for us, and they're going to keep putting us up on a methadone because they think that's the right answer for us. Uh, considering that the message that we hear from ex-heroin addicts oh. is, is that the methadone addiction is actually worse. Yeah. They find it harder to get off the methadone and then we've got people within the system encouraging more. That, I mean, it, it is... It seems so counterproductive to me, man. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, on this point, do you, um, do you feel like we should decriminalise drugs in Scotland or in general, seeing like the, the positive... Uh, aspects of the Portuguese trials. Um, There's been they... something in America, Oregon. Did they decriminalise everything recently as well? Uh huh. Is that mm -hmm. something that you believe in? 
I'm not sure if I'm being honest because we can look at the Portuguese model and it's not as successful as we think when we really look into it, you know, it's not as successful. We only see what the newspapers publish or what's on the news, but when you look behind the scenes, it seems it's not as successful as we think it is. Then we look at Scotland as a very different culture from Portugal or America or anywhere else. And I just don't know where I am with legalising drugs. I don't know. I don't know yet where I am. Do I think we should decriminalise some drugs? Yes, I do. I do. I think okay. that I know too many people that are going to prison for bits of cannabis because yeah. they've been stopped three, four, five, six times. When the reality is a wee guy that's smoking a bit of cannabis in his house is not going to be out committing crime because he's a cabbage. He doesn't want to go anywhere. He's just wanting to sit and, you know, so he's not harming anybody. So I think things like that. But then on the flip side, when I look at the street diazepam that's going about just now with the atazolam in it, like if we were to decriminalise drugs, where would that leave street drugs like that? You know, it's, it's, quite, it's, a very, yeah. it's very difficult to answer that. So I don't know where I'm at. So would, would, would it be easier to say that we could re- decriminalise drug, drug use? Drug use, I. Rather I think, than... Yeah, I think we should decriminalise drug use. We shouldn't be punishing someone for using drugs, uh-huh. you know... But then it's, I think very, that, it's very difficult, isn't uh, it? Absolutely, absolutely. It's a tightrope. But the one that doesn't make sense for me is, is that here's a, a, a heroin strength opioid with a brand name on it and a trademark. Take this for your bad back. But if you're once, like, especially we've seen this in America, they take it off them. Now you're taking that too much. They end up on the street taking heroin. It's like straight to prison. So, so if your doctor writes you a prescription, uh, and I get, I absolutely get what, what, what you're saying about the dangers of the street drugs, but I think that if we decriminalise and we set up testing centres like they've got in Switzerland, like people can take, I think they'd said some, I'd watched something that said that uh, ecstasy deaths in Switzerland had went from certain amount to non-existent simply by setting up these test centres and nightclubs where people could take their ecstasy tablets. They would test it and the guy would say, don't take that. Mm-hmm. Or take, that's only safe up to like this amount. That's a high dosage and their deaths mm-hmm. went through the floor. So that's the type of stuff where you're like, right, okay, but absolutely, I think that just decriminalising or legalising drugs is not like the way that we should go. You're saying that so many, the the street diazepam one and the the street sort of benzos is Mm -hmm. rife and crazy, but... Do you have an um, opinion on the, obviously, the funding that seems to be coming for the Scottish government over the next few years and obviously the drug deaths and stuff? Um, what were they talking like 50 million or whatever? Is that money that you're likely to see or actually have an impact on your services? If we see any of that 50 million, I will go streaking through Glasgow <laughs> for a full mile. Um, I don't know. We have never saw any money. We, and that's where the conflict and isolation works with. You know, there's a lot of competition when you're writing funding applications. Mm-hmm. And my experience is strategic planning and st- strategic creating recovery initiatives within a Scottish prison service and now how to create that model in the community. So my experience is not a bid writer or a funding writer. You know, yeah. I don't have that university education. I don't have 10 years experience of doing it. And I don't have the time either because it's time consuming. Absolutely. So it takes me maybe depending on the funding application, a week to two weeks to do a funding application where you'll have an expert that will already have all that information in a system that can copy and paste bits, you know, and get it out. I can't compete with that. That we don't have, we, we can't compete with, with funding like that. Also, we're very, very small. 
And because I'm quite gobby, you know, I think people like to keep you in. A play Again, it comes down to social classes, isn't it? People like to keep you somewhere because they then know where you are yeah. and they know that they have power over you. I, we did have a, a meeting with Angela Constance and it was a very successful meeting actually. There was no money promised, which was great because she was a very, it was a very no bullshit conversation, which I like people that will say, Natalie, here's my cards on the table with you because I'm very yep. much the same. You'll get my cards too. Mm -hmm. There is going to be a small amount of money that grassroots organisations can access. So I don't know when that is going to be announced, but hopefully we can get some of that. I mean, I worked for two years using my savings money for my mortgage for my house because we could not get funding. No wow. one would fund us. We were so unsupported. And, I, and I'm talking about, I was begging. I was begging Hamza Yusuf. I was begging the Scottish government. I'm saying, look, here's the outcomes that we're achieving. We've got a fantastic through care plan. Can you please help us? And lo and behold, I had no money left in my savings account. I had done all my mortgage savings. And thankfully, Jackie Lowe, um, who saw some of our work on Twitter, had saw the struggles, asked to come up to the prison and in front of a room of prisoners says, I'm going to give you guys 20 grand because I believe in your work. And that was the first pocket of money that we got. And then because people saw the Colin Weir Foundation invest a little bit, we got a little bit for the Robertson's Trust and now we've got a little bit from the lottery. So, you know, hopefully now funders can start to believe in our work because although we don't we don't shout about outcomes and I hate people that go, oh, we're very outcome driven and our KPIs are wonderful. And I'm like, an outcome for me is a wee guy that is managing his tenancy, mm -hmm. managing his mental health, that he's, not, he's no longer having to go to a chemist every single day and he's working with his mentor and he's now looking at what skills and attributes he has and what he yep. can now contribute to society. That's an outcome for me. An outcome is not, he got out of prison, let me tick a box. We got him into yeah. accommodation, let me tick a box. Okay, he's just on his methadone, let me tick another. They're not outcomes for me, they're bullshit yeah. actually. The outcome is the whole person getting better. Absolutely, and I think like, I've worked, I worked in the corporate world for so long and I can tell mm. you, and management, KPIs mean nothing because I, I could I, <laughs> you could send me some KPIs and some percentages and I'll spin you a yarn if you like I'll put you take you down a rabbit hole of confusion yeah. with numbers and telling you how I've done a great job and I think we've seen that under Blair and Brown that's what they did it was this whole KPI culture yeah. let's set targets let's set police targets it sounds great for productivity but at the end of the day like we know how to fucking swindle these figures like and Aye. what we want that. is quality no quantity yeah you know I mean? we want yep. people getting the right quality yeah. support no they've got the quantity there um i think as we sort of start to wrap up because we're <clears> conscious <throat> about getting close to there um and looking he's up prior i seen um is it, is it unheard voices the event coming up on uh valentine's day is that right yeah yeah what's what's that we'll give we chance to bump it if you like so Unheard Voices is exactly what it says in the thing. It's an opportunity for to listen to a professional panel. So we have uh, Loki, Dan McGarvey, who's going to talk about social classes. We then have Suzanne Zadik, who is an expert when we talk about adverse childhood trauma and how it affects babies. So like even me as a child, I would experience adverse childhood trauma in my mum's womb because of the violence within the family home. She'll talk about that. We then have Ian Keegan-Smith, the lawyer, who'll talk about why he is so set on a trauma-informed manner working with his client groups as a solicitor. 
We're then going to have um, a politician with one of her constituents who her partners committed suicide and she chapped every door, she knows she was everywhere. We then have lived experience and then I'm going to summarise it all by talking about everybody. So it's what it says in the tin, it's unheard voices, it's, you know, these guys are a product of a broken system and unless we create changes from the childhood, so like more prevention work, then we're going to see more guys in prison. So okay. it's just to try and show people, look, if we don't influence change, uh, when these kids are kids, if we don't go into schools, if we're not teaching them how to have good morals and values and standards, they're going to grow up as shitty little teenagers with attitude problems, resentments towards the whole of the world, massive chips on their shoulder. Ultimately, what are they going to do? They're going to make the wrong choices. Yeah, absolutely. How do people connect with that? Unheard voices, if they want to attend, are they allowed to like? Uh, yep, get so there is um, tickets on Eventbrite for it, and it will also be live on Favour UK's Facebook page. And I believe we're going to try and do it live on Twitter as well, just to try and get it across as many platforms as we can. Because I think for me, it's really, really important, as you guys says, like I've got family members that grew up in trauma and that are very still much the point of view, you know, Natalie, these guys need to really pull their socks up, you know, because they just don't see it for what it is. And I think if we can show society that mathematicians can't solve a math problem unless they actually see it and work on it and break it down, an addict's no different. Until we see them and work with them <clears throat> and break them down and rebuild that solution, they're just going to go right back to the same cycle and it's yeah. never going to change. Absolutely. We'll make sure this, we get a wee retweet of that out and stuff well, what ahead I was of time. Going to say was is that this episode's probably going to go out a week tomorrow. But okay. what I'm going to do is is I'll just come off this call and I'll pull this section and I'll make it into a video and I'll send it to you so you can put it on Twitter and tag Darren oh, and tag James and then if they retweet it, it'll just get more traction and we'll put it on our right. Instagrams and stuff. Uh, even Absolutely. if you send us the Eventbrite link, we can include it in in, in the tweet. So I'll do that for you this afternoon. I think I've screen I've got screen grabs it already for also reading up. Um, Natalie, I think that you get anything else, Paul? No, mate, and I think no. it's just been like great talking to you, Natalie. Really has. I think when we talk about you know how people can make an impact on their community, like one of the things we always talk about is enjoying the people who. I like fuck the government like don't don't sit about and wait for permission to actually make change and like hearing you talk about the work that you do like in those terms you've just been the absolute perfect guest like um keep doing what you're doing like if there's anything at all we can help promote or you know get involved with we're all about it thanks matt and uh, thanks paul i really appreciate you guys time today just to talk about our work because i think it's important that people hear what we're doing you know, and we don't and see the guys we work with just on an end and note because I think it's dead important to know that the guys we work with are not bad people. They just made bad choices. Yeah. You know, so we we my job is to reinforce good values and morals and really help them to look at an ideal version of them. How can they be an ideal version of them? So you you know they're not bad people. They've just made really really shit choices in life and they're being punished for it. Absolutely, that's amazing. Thanks very much, Natalie.
To be a 